If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus. We are finishing up, concluding the first of three Exodus sermon series. I broke it into three uh, because uh, James once pointed out uh, that he was here at BCC for a very long time, and for like nine months we were in Isaiah, and he left for like six months and came back, and we were still in Isaiah. And I was like, yeah, that was a lot. You're right. So I, I, it makes sense. And, and also, Exodus is just broken up into these three pieces anyway, right? So it's just, it makes sense for us to, to bust this up. So we're going to wrap it up. The We'll roll into our sermon series, uh, um, our summer series uh, next week. Uh, and um, looking forward to that as well. But we're going to wrap up uh, uh, where we have been. So since we're wrapping up, uh, allow me, uh, uh, indulge me a little bit uh, as I summarize <laughs> where where we've been um, and what's going on to set up where we're going to be today. So uh, the story so far, right? We did Genesis uh, over. We did Genesis in three pieces too, by the way, over years. Uh, but so in Exodus, we, uh, it just follows up Genesis. It's a continuation of that story. So in Genesis, we get the story, the very beginning of God creating, right? He, I love the image of, of uh, Genesis 1 so much. He, uh, it says the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And waters is an image um, in the Bible for chaos, right? You get to Revelation and there is no sea. Not because you can't go fishing, Right? That wouldn't be much of a heaven. But the new heaven is the new earth. It's not that you can go fishing, it's that the chaos is controlled. And even in the tabernacle, we'll get to this part, we'll see this, the God controlling the seas. So what he does is he splits the seas and land comes out of the seas uh, and he creates uh, a place that's, from the chaos, he, create, he creates a place that life can flourish and be. Yeah, that's the story of Genesis. Bending down into the dirt, forming mankind. So after that, though, uh, there's this snake appears on the scene, right? Uh, And this uh, spiritual being um, convinces Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, uh, to rebel against God. And and instead of trusting God for what all he's promised, they think that they, they're they're tricked into believing uh, that they can find their own way to the promises and to the blessing. And so they rebel against God and, and choose their own path. And because of that, sin enters the world. Um, when sin enters the world, um, death and destruction enter the world as well. And it gets so bad at one point, you get to Genesis 9, and God just deconstructs the world, right? The floods are just the chaos waters coming back up, right? There's this deconstruction and this reconstruction. But things are still bad. So God says he's gonna, you know, he's gonna fix everything, right? He promised this from the very beginning. He told the serpent he was gonna curse after the, after the sin. He promised the serpent that he was going to, to curse the serpent and, and that one day the a seed of this woman would crush the head of this snake. So sin comes along and gets really bad. There's the decreation. And then God says, listen, here's how I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this through descendants of a man named Abraham, has a son named Isaac, has a son named Jacob. Uh, that's where the, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people come from. Um, and through a crazy turn of events, these people, God's going to make them a great people, and he's going to give them his law and land, and he's going to be their God, bless the whole world through this nation. They end up in Egypt, right? And even the way they end up in Egypt, uh, through this, guy named, this kid named Joseph, um, they, they end up down there, and God uses Joseph in a powerful way, not to just save the Israelites, not to just save the descendants of Abraham, but also to save the whole world. Right? He uses him in Egypt in a powerful way. He's like a legend in Egypt. Second in control after the Pharaoh. 
But even Joseph knows they're not supposed to be in Egypt, right? Right before Joseph dies, like his last words are like, don't even leave my bones here, man. This is not where we're supposed to be. God's promised us our own land, right? So uh, at the end of Genesis, that's, that's where we're at, right? We're in Egypt. Well, a lot of years go by. And a couple things happen. Uh, one is that this people, that God's promised that through this man Abraham, he would grow a great nation. Like, it's, it's happening, right? It's happening. They become, this clan that moved into Egypt, uh, this few people that moved into Egypt uh, so many years ago have become just a great people. There's just a bunch of them. And another thing that's happened is that the people in Egypt who knew about Joseph and how he was a hero, they've forgotten about him. Doesn't know. The Pharaoh says, I, I, I don't know who this Joseph is. And so he looks around and he sees all the people and he decides to deal shrewdly with them. Snake imagery again. He's going to deal shrewdly with them, so he enslaves them. And he does this because of his fear that if a fight breaks out with another nation, they take the wrong side and they overthrow him. So he enslaves them and puts them to work building things and making bricks. And God says, listen, I'm going to rescue my people. He hears their cry, and he uses this man named Moses. He says, listen, Moses, I need you to go. I know you've been there before. I need you to go back to Egypt. I know it's where you grew up, but you've got to go back to Egypt. I want you to talk to the Pharaoh. I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh. Moses is very resistant. God gives him some signs, right? He says, listen, pour water on the ground. It turns to blood. And you know what? Put your hand in your, in your cloak. comes out leprous. Put it back in. It goes away. And it, listen, you know what? Take your staff, throw it on the ground. It becomes a snake. Pick it up by the tail. It becomes a staff again. Go show Pharaoh these things. Pharaoh is not impressed. <laughs> he goes to Pharaoh and says, you got to let my people go. He does the stuff. Pharaoh's not impressed. He says this. He says, listen, God, Moses says to him, hey, Yahweh, God, if you see in your Bible when it says Lord in all caps, right? That's, that's the word Yahweh. It's the proper name for God. And so his, 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 Yahweh, I mean proper name, not like you should always use it. I mean proper as in like Chris is my proper name. Make sense? All right, anyway. So Yahweh, says Yahweh says you should let his people go. And Pharaoh says this. I don't know any Yahweh. Moreover, I will not let your people go. And so there sets up this, this, this huge clash. Uh, it's this Pharaoh. Who, who's going to control, control the people of God? Who will the people of God serve? And this, this battle between heaven and earth is just set. And uh, God begins to rain blows down on Pharaoh in Egypt. Just plague after plague. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. And, and just Pharaoh and Egypt are getting battered, but they keep recovering and going, no, we're going to stay in the fight. You know? and, and he keeps just battering them with blows. And finally, the final, this, this final blow is the death of the firstborn. And they, they kick the Israelites out of Egypt. But it really wasn't the final blow. Right? So... Taylor so brilliantly last week preached about this scene where they're hemmed up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh changes his mind. He sees them wandering around the desert and he chases, goes to chase them down. He comes, just all of his chariots and all of his men just come rushing after them and they're pinned up and God says, listen, I'm gonna do something here and he splits the Red Sea, they cross over and he destroys the Egyptians in front of their eyes and it's this amazing, amazing thing. That's where we're at and today we're gonna, we're gonna wrap up this section because that's what actually happens next. Uh, before we get to that though, I'm gonna say something very controversial uh, and it's gonna split the congregation. Um, not evenly. Um, but I want you to remember what was read earlier at First Peter that unity is the thing that we fight for. I cannot tell you guys how nervous Josh Price is right now. 
Like he's just super nervous. Here's the thing that I'm going to say. Uh, I hate musicals because they're stupid. Hold on, hold on. They're just dumb. And you might say, why? Because people don't burst into song. And you might say, yeah, Chris, but like superhero movies, people don't, like, people fly. I'm like, yeah, but that's a thing you'd want to do. People bursting into song, literal nightmare. I, I get it. Fight for unity, though. We love each other anyway. But I love, I love songs, though, right? I love, I love songs. Here's the thing, though. What happens right after they go across the Red Sea is chapter 15. They, they burst into song. <laughs> Let's read this. They cross the Red Sea. This is called the Song by the Sea. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. All caps, Yahweh. Sang. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown them into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts, he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury and it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. And you blew your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You've led in steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people's heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. To your people pass, O Lord, pass by. To the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. 
pouring the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and the horsemen went into the sea. The Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Two songs, it was a double number. They stopped and they sang. And it's a beautiful song. I love how it starts. I just was this week as I was studying and reading, I was struck by this line. It happens when you read scripture. Sometimes, the Lord is my strength and my song. Those seem like two very different things, right? <laughs> What's the strongest thing about you? My song. No, like, but he's like, you know, he's, 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 he is this strength, but he's also this thing that brings me deep joy. He is my strength, but he is also the thing that fills me that I must tell you about. He is this strong fortress, but he's also this gentle tune that brings happiness. Yeah. I love, love, love this image. And it's beautiful, right? I mean, uh, poetically, right? If you think about what's happening, if you read it and spend a little bit of time with it, or if you read, or better yet, if you're not super great with things like this, like me, uh, if you read other people point out stuff to you, you begin to see things like how this is a complete inversion, right? Like as you read through it, it starts with these high and elevated horses and chariots and the might of Egypt that end in the bottom of the sea, and these slaves in Egypt who end elevated on the mountain of God, it's not an accident. That's artistry, right? It's beautiful. This is beautiful, beautiful song. Really powerful images. I don't know why, but I love the line uh, that the, um, the, the, the depths were congealed, right? In the heart of the sea. The heart of the sea just froze solid, <laughs> knotted up because you told it to. So this whole thing, though, is just simply about what God's done, right? It's a recap of what he just did. Um, I, I, there are things in life, I, I, I kind of, I, I just don't like pomp and circumstance. I don't know why. Something wrong with me, defective, I get it. I just don't love, like, I, you know, I wasn't going to walk at my own graduation from college. I was like, nah, I'm good. Thanks. I don't need that hoopla. We're good. Let's move on with life. My dad was like, hey, your mom wants you to. You're going to. I said, yes, sir. Seems fair. You know, they've been writing checks for a minute, you know. Did it. But I didn't for my, I didn't for my grad. Like, I didn't do grad school. Like, I was just like, nah, I don't need the pomp and circuit. But here's the reality. There are things that ought to be marked by celebration. And God's deliverance, phew, it's the thing that should be marked by celebration. And that's what they do. They stop and they sing a song of celebration about what God has done. And the song is primarily about salvation, right? It's primarily about God's saving work. The previous chapter, so there's one time in Genesis salvation is mentioned, but it's, it's mentioned in a different way. This is the first time, like, in, uh, the idea of God saving a people. It's the first time it's actually mentioned. It's a big deal because it's, like, for the rest of Scripture, like, this is what the scriptures point back to as being salvation, this event. So in chapter 14, when they're they're passing through the the Red Sea, in verses, let's see, where is it? Uh, Yeah, here it is. It says this, uh, verse 11. They said to Moses, right, they're they're hemmed in against the Red Sea and the army's coming, right? The Egyptian army's coming. 
And this is what the people who say. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us out to die in the wilderness? Why have you done this to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness, which is probably true. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. It's the first mention. See the salvation of the Lord, a God who saves, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This is a song about what God has done, and what God has done is save them, right? He has rescued them. This This becomes the definition of what salvation looks like. God acting on the behalf of his people to rescue them. They had no power. They had no agency. They had no future when they were in Egypt. And God acts to rescue them, to give them deliverance, to give them agency, to let them go free from serving Pharaoh. Now, he sets them free, though, to be very clear, not to just do whatever they want. Right? This becomes paradigmatic. This becomes a model for what salvation looks like. He doesn't set us free to just do whatever you want. Right? I think sometimes we get that in our American heads, right? Like, God set me free. Only Jesus can judge me. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's not, what, that's not what happened. This is a battle over who they will serve. Will you serve Pharaoh and his, and his slavery, or will you serve God? He sets them free from slavery to come serve him right? Because that's what, it would be bad for him. It would be bad for us, for God to set us free to do whatever we wanted. Because you know what? We're really bad at knowing what's good for us. Be honest. You can, that's, that's, you just know, I don't need to back that up. You know that you're really bad at knowing what's good for you. And we just want the wrong things over and over and over again. So he doesn't set them free to do whatever they want. Because here's what you would do if you were left to yourself. At the first sign of danger, you would run back to slavery. Or you'd find somebody else to serve. How long has it been since I mentioned Dylan? It's been a minute. Like, Bob, like the theologian Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. It might be Jesus or it might be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, you're going to serve somebody. That's so true. We just designed for worship. We are designed to serve something. We always end up serving something. And so he sets, if he, he sets them free not to just go figure out what else to serve, but to come and serve him because he desires good for them. Whereas Pharaoh did not. And all the other gods that we pursue will not. And this isn't simple triumphalism, right? This isn't simple, don't think that this story in no way falls into the category of if you just have enough faith, God will set you free. That's not what's going on here, right? Because this, simple triumphalism gets you in trouble, right? Like if you're just like paint, like, you know, praise God on the back of your new bigger boat, that, you know, that's not the same thing, right? Like these people knew actual suffering, right? 430 years they've been in Egypt, They've been slaves for a long portion of it. Not only that, they've watched their baby boys be thrown in the Nile River and killed. These people knew suffering. 
Not only that, when salvation came the first time and Moses showed up to tell them that God had set them free, they worshiped, and then when things got bad, they fell back, and then they worshiped again, and they fell back, and then at the edge of the sea, they fell back again. These people know suffering. This is not simple. If you just have enough faith, God will rescue you. This is God rescuing you in the midst of all of the pain and suffering, to pulling you out. These simplifications, if you just say, I have enough faith and God will rescue you from whatever situation you're in, that wrecks your faith when it doesn't work. When God's going to put you something through something even harder. What it is is trusting a God that even when things are terrifying, even when things are oppressive, even when armies are chasing you, that you trust to save you. They knew oppression and now they knew salvation and salvation should be celebrated. It was a scary salvation too, by the way, right? Like that scene, right? Oh, it's so terrifying. The scene, right? They're, they're, they're by the shore and this army is approaching. <laughs> and your choice becomes, they go to Moses and are like freaking out, right? And God, he's like, just watch what God's gonna do. And you're like, great. Maybe he'll teleport us to the promised land, Right? Nope. And instead, he opens up a giant pathway behind you in the sea. Right? This huge, scary salvation that you've got to pass through. If you want to, here's the choice that they have. You can stay here and be decreated by, killed, decreated by the Egyptians, or you can pass through this giant chaos path that looks like decreation. Take your pick. And they pass through this scary, scary salvation. This is just, there's just so much creation language here. There's the deep, the, the, at the Red Sea, there's so much creation language that, that God splits the waters. That's what he did at creation, right? And then when the Egyptians go in, he, he, he lets the waters come back. There's flood language there. Like they, he decreates. He, he, it's almost like he's creating a new nation that passes through the water and then decreating the evil that pursues them. That's the story that's being told there. It is salvation. There's baptism imagery here. There's all this beautiful stuff. Taylor said it perfectly last week that God destroys by water and decreasing the Egyptians who killed their babies by throwing them in the water. He is saving them. That's what he's doing. And he's also making his his name great. Pharaoh knows who he is now. Right? This Pharaoh who said, I don't know who Yahweh is, knows who he is and what he's like. But not just Pharaoh. All of Egypt knows. Not just all of Egypt, but like nations surrounding hear about it. Not just them, but the Israelites themselves see more clearly this is what God is like and that is why they sing. Our God does not is just mighty. He's not just powerful. He uses his might and his power to save. This is what he's like. He's made his name great in victory. And not just among the Israelites, not just among the Egyptians and the people around it, but among the gods of Egypt. That's what he says. God gets his victory not over just Egypt, but over the gods of Egypt. Because when God acts in history, he's also acting in heaven. Does that make sense? In heavens? Here's what I mean. God's rescue of these people happens in history, right? It's a historical thing that happened, right? He's acting in these people's lives. 
But I think there's also a heavenly battle going on, right? This battle over the gods who would oppress people like this. In our lives, so often when God does something, it's not just he's rescuing us out of a situation. He's almost He's always doing something in the heavenly realms as well. And that's what I think revelation is, by the way. I think revelation is this pulling back of the curtain to show you that there's just, you see this happening here and he's pulling back the curtain and saying, there's a battle going on, this being one you don't even see. There's there's things happening in history, but there's the things happening in the heavens that God is doing there. He's making his name great. Something else going on in this song that I love. So let's imagine this situation. So uh, let's say uh, somebody asks you, hey, you like they come up to you, uh, and a friend of yours says, listen, you go to church, right? You're like, you read the Bible. And you're like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And they're like, I have a question. And you know this, this friend is unchurched. They don't know much. And this friend says to you, tell me what God is like. Well, what do you say, right? If you grew up in church, you should, hopefully you start with God is love. That's a great answer, right? God is love. It's right there at the top. Like you should, I think that's the lens that we see all scripture through. God is love, right? But then you would go, he's, oh, he's loving. He loves us. God loves. And you're repeating love because you're trying to think of the next thing, right? He loves us. Oh, he's, but he's merciful. Oh, he's gracious. And you start coming up with all these church words. Oh, but he's also justice. Like he's just, right? Like he's good. I know it's hard to understand, but he's just. Like you say all these things, what God is like. How long before you get to he fights? I don't think that would come up for me immediately, right? What's God's like? He throws hands. That's what this says. This whole song is God throwing hands. It's, look, I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he's trying gloriously. How did he do it? Horse and his rider threw him into the sea. And he just keeps going. Strength and a song, salvation, this is what he's done. He's a man, the Lord, verse three, the Lord is a man of war. Pharaoh and his chariots, cast him in the sea. Officers, sunk in the sea. Flood, covered him, sank like a stone. Your majesty is great. You overthrow your adversaries. You, as a matter, not only in this first, in the previous chapter, it actually says that. It actually says there's a point in the thing. Uh, here it is, 24 and 25. It says this uh, when it's happening. Uh, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. What is our God like? According to this, he fights. He fights on behalf of his people fascinating. They needed to know this, right? They're about to march through this land, right? So they, the Egyptians sunk like a stone and the psalm goes on to use that imagery again and says they pass, they're going to pass through these lands of Philistia. They're going headed to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And it says that all of the other nations tremble in fear. They're still as a stone. They're about to go face a bunch of fighting and they, that they're not equipped for. They're not ready for this. They're not a a warrior people. They're not an army. And they're about to pass through lands of people who are. And God, they need to know that they serve a God who will fight for them. And they get to the promised land. This happens a ton. The the kings, when they finally demand a king, the kings are like start making treaties. And God's like, what are you doing making treaties? with? Like, don't trust in Egypt. Don't trust in these surrounding nations to help protect you. I am your God. I fight for you. 
It's not just that you need to know. I'm sympathetic, right? Because like, it's so easy to hedge your bets. Like, God will satisfy me deeply, but also my savings account needs to be a certain level. Then we're good, right? Like, I trust in God as long as I can also have these other things as well, right? That kind of make me feel better. This solely trusting that our God fights for us is unbelievably necessary. And, and here's why. They had to know because they're going to face nations that are greater than them and mightier than them. They had to know because they're going to face armies that they're not ready to fight. They need to know that God is going to fight for them. God says, total victory. Pharaoh and Egypt, you'll never see them again over the gods of Egypt. He keeps telling, <laughs> during the whole scene, man, it's so beautiful. He keeps telling uh, um, Moses, the one who's going to be like God to Pharaoh, to reach out his hand over the sea and it'll part. And so Moses does and it parts. And he keeps using the staff and reaches out his hand and he comes back and it wipes them away. And there's this beautiful imagery of just Moses, the snake handler. You know what I mean? Right? Author is brilliant. He's going to fight for us. He's going to do this for them, and they need to know that. They can't have any other allies. God alone is the one who's going to win this victory, and he wants them to know that. Here's why this is such good news to you and me. Because we will face things in life that we cannot handle. I think I don't hear it said much anymore, but when I was growing up, people would say things like, um, uh, God will never give you more than you can handle, which is a dumb thing to say out loud. Right? I think we overestimate what we can handle, right? I think we're tough. We think we get stuff done every day. But the truth is, like, we can't handle traffic, right, without getting wrecked inside. We can't handle, like, the news. We can't handle, like, our time we spend on our phones, right? We can't handle any of Can we just be honest? We're really bad at handling our own thoughts and feelings, Right? They get a hold of us most days. We are so, I th- just, we, First Peter says the devil is out there trying to get you, pursuing you like a crouching lion. You ready to fight a lion? You're not ready to fight a lion. I'm not ready to fight a lion. There are battles that we will fight on a daily basis where we're, Temptations and, and all manner of things fighting for our attention and our affection will pursue us. And these are battles that we fight every single day. And if you think that you're ready to fight those battles on your own, you're mistaken. Now, who am I to fight against Satan who is pursuing me like a tiger, like a lion trying to take me down and break me. I think that sometimes we miss it. I think sometimes we miss it because we expect this huge spiritual moment where this huge temptation just jumps in front of us. But sometimes what if the battle is just, what if the devil's just learned over the, the millennia that he's been around that, that a slow drift is much more effective than a, might, than, than a, than a front assault? What if my pride just over 10, 15, 20 years just wrecks me? because I didn't fight that battle every day. Here's the thing. If you don't think that there is a spiritual war for your soul going on, you're losing. You're losing. If you don't know, if you're not aware that there is a fight for your attention, for your affection every single day, you're losing. And those are the little daily battles. What about the big battles? 
What about the fact that I'm going to one day die and have to explain the life that I've lived? What about that fight? I'm not ready for that either. I'm not equipped for any of these things, the daily things or the big things. So what do we do? Well, it'd be best if we had someone that fought for us, that fought for us, whose victory counted for ours. That's what they encounter in this moment, a God who fights for them, who wins the victory for them, who brings salvation for them, and they stop and they write down this song. Why? I think it's important to stop and remember this stuff, and and here's why. Uh, Because one of the broken parts of our brain is that when things are going really, really well, we'll think we got there by ourselves. Yeah, you you know it's true, right? Like, over time, you just begin to think, look at things, they're pretty good. I must be awesome. You get there accidentally, you begin to think, I'm a pretty good guy. Life's going pretty good. God must be lucky to have me. And we drift into thinking like that, and so they write down this song that reminds them we had nothing to do with our salvation. Sing this song, why? To remember how great God is, that he fights for us so we're never tempted to fight for ourselves, that we always trust on him to do that. Also because we'll begin to think that we have deserved. They're gonna get to Canaan and what's gonna happen almost immediately is they're gonna get settled, they're gonna, life's gonna get good, they're gonna look around and go like, we don't really need God anymore, do we? Life's pretty good. We deserve this, God must love us. We're awesome. And they just go about their lives and ignore him. We need these songs to remind us. I love the songs that we sing here. I love that we sing songs. I love the new song today so much. I almost wanted to just say, please just sing it again. It was so good. Just remind us what he's like, what he's done, and that I have not deserved it. One of the reasons we talk about keeping the cross so central, this is what God has done is because if we do not keep this cross central and we just say, hey, you know what? Jesus loves you. We can begin to drift into thinking that we deserve to be loved. The cross reminds us, yes, you were loved in your sin, but it's cost that. It cost that. My sin and my brokenness required sacrifice and God acted and I did nothing. Nothing to deserve it and nothing to accomplish it. I need this to function every day. I need to be reminded of this to function every day in a proper uh, reality-aligned way. Here's what I mean. If I begin to believe that I deserve it when life goes bad, what does that mean? I don't deserve it anymore. When something comes along that I can't handle or the delusion of control is smashed, then what happens? I begin to believe that I, God doesn't, isn't happy with me or I begin to, what, doubt that God cares at all? No, 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 no. It's important to remember who I am and who he is. When I face a difficult, let's say you have a coworker that is difficult to get along with. They struggle, they're just miserable, they're angry. How do I go about dealing with this? First of all, you know who you are. And you know who God is. What he's capable of, that he's powerful and mighty, that he fights on our behalf, that we can sit there and we can love this person who is difficult to love because we've been loved and we're difficult to love. 
We are prone to wander so we can love this person well. We can put in our mind in the right place and fix and love this person for a long, long time, praying for them, caring for them, pouring into them because we remember who we are and who God is, what we are capable of and what he is capable of and that he fights for us. You don't fight your battle against sin and temptation by yourself. God has placed his spirit inside of us to help us fight. He's given us this equipment, this beautiful image in, that Paul uses in, in Ephesians of the armor of God, the things that God has done, given to us, placed on us to protect us and help us fight and stand firm. We don't fight alone. Jesus says on the cross, this beautiful moment. Oh, I just love it so much. I think about it all the time. That's why you guys hear about it all the time. Jesus on the cross, he's about to die at the very end. He just looks up to heaven and says, it's finished. I just love it so much. I think about it all the time, because I need to think about it all the time, to remind myself that I did nothing, and he did everything. That I rebelled, and he went faithfully to the cross. That I throw a fit every single day. God, why would you do this? Every single day, I just fight and fight and fight and try to earn. I have to remind myself that I can't. It's just this constant battle, and it's never, ever, ever until I reach the end of my deadly doing and lay everything down that I hear his words so well. It's finished. It's finished. You couldn't have done it anyway. I did it. God's wrath satisfied. Our eternity secure. Made children of God. What a gift. This is what salvation looks like. We have this choice. We can turn around and try to bargain with the Egyptian army, the gods of this world that want to control and manipulate and take and use. Or you can turn around and pass through his decreation. Right? The being born again, being baptized, being born into a new life where his life pours into you. That is the choice that we have. Trying to bargain with this world or surrendering to Christ. That's what salvation looks like and it's worth singing about. It's why we come here every single week. It's why we place such a priority here on worship because the songs that we sing are, I'm stealing a line from, I think it was Wesley said, uh, Charles Wesley said, uh, it is portable theology. These songs that we plan in our heart to remind us of the reality, these songs that you find yourselves accidentally humming, these songs that remind you that he will create in us a clean heart when we are obedient, the songs that remind us that God is powerful and that he is mighty and that he fights for us. We need songs. So yeah, I do not like Oklahoma. But sometimes we need to burst into song. Sometimes we need to mark salvation and God's mighty work with song. Yeah. So let's do that. We're going to come to the table and we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate and we're going to worship and we're going to praise this God who gives us life through his death and leads us forward on that path for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you bring life through death, that what looks like chaos, what looks like the end to you is just the next thing, the next phase, the next, the way that you bring life in real life. What a powerful picture that you create and you decreate, that you bring life 
and that you destroy evil. May we sing of this well here. You know what? God, thank you that we sing of this well here. For those that lead us, for those that sing with them, those that I hear singing on days they don't want to sing, uh, on days that I don't want to sing, God, I thank you that we sing of your great salvation here, that we are constantly pointing one another to your great salvation. I'm just so grateful for a church that celebrates your salvation that reminds me of my need of your salvation, that reminds me of your goodness and your power because there are times that everything just seems so overwhelming. There are days that it doesn't look like salvation. There are days that what you are doing does not look like salvation, but you are always working to bring your people to your home, to plant us on your holy mountain is the image bring us home to you. Change us and make us like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.